Well, my name's Ralph. I'm married to Laura. She's over there. She's wonderful. Got two little boys called Ben and Seth, who uh, spend most of their Sunday afternoons doing laps around here. Apologies if they've ever run into you. Um, they're very sweet, though, so say hi if that does happen. Um, we are thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. We've been doing that for a few weeks. And uh, today I'm going to be talking to you about making oaths. Although I've just realized I can't say oaths. Like, is it oaths or is it oaths? Oaths? Okay, there's consensus there. So, great, I have been doing it wrong. That's good to know. Um, but uh, let's just pray. <laughs> Father, thank you that you're here and you're with us and you're good. Jesus, thank you your kingdom's coming. We get to be a part of it. Your kingdom's at hand. And so I just pray in whatever way you would want this afternoon, God, we'd step into that. That your rule and your reign in us and through us and around us would increase. So we surrender our hearts, we surrender our um, agendas and just ask that you do what only you can do. Yeah, in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So, um, but before we get into oaths, oaths, um, I just want to make some general points about the Sermon on the Mount, which uh, uh, you've probably heard before, but I think it's just going to be helpful just to keep reminding us as we, as we journey through. Um, and the first is that it's really important that we remember this discourse that Jesus gave, um, particularly as we have it in Matthew, is, is a thing. I know that's very profound, but it is one thing. And then... Um, the fact that we as a church are going through it, and as many churches have and will continue to do um, for the rest of time, and the fact it's very neatly separated in your Bible, and there's little sections, and they've all got slightly different topics, and so it lends itself to being studied compartmentally. But it's really important that we remember it is a whole thing. And it, those two things are on at odds with one another, but if we just take each bit um, in and of itself, we... Uh, we sort of, we find meaning in and of itself and not as part of the whole thing. And I think that's important, particularly with this, because a lot of what Jesus is talking about feels like it's about behavior. Because it is, in lots of ways. Like, it, it's a lot of, a lot of it shows up in how we live and how we act and what we do. And, but the reality is that the message is about our hearts, and we need to have that as a whole thing so that when we're picking out a different thing and we're looking at a different topic and today we're looking about uh, what we do when we speak and we say words, we need to know that it's not just about getting that specific thing right so that then we can move on to the next thing and hopefully at the end of it we'll have a Christian report grade that feels acceptable. We need to think about the whole thing. And so the overarching meaning, I, I think, of the Sermon on the Mount is... Um, Dallas Willard, who wrote The Divine Conspiracy, who's brilliant, if you haven't read any of his stuff yet, do that. Um, he summarized it as this, which is really helpful. The, the overarching meaning of the Sermon on the Mount is repent, for life in the kingdom is an option for you. Repent, for life in the kingdom is an option for you. In other words, there is a way of living and being and thinking and doing that is God's way. It's the kingdom. It's the idea that it's, it's where what is happening in that place, it's a dynamic thing rather than a spatial thing, is what God would want to be happening. It's his rule and its reign. And there's God's kingdom and there's other kingdoms. 
It's not quite as simple as one's over here and one's over there and they're against each other, but there is a way of living life that is God's way and it is different and distinctive to the way of the world. And the way to get from one to the other is through repentance. It's through changing our mind, changing the way we're thinking, turning away from one and towards another. But then the crucial thing, it's possible. It is an option for you. It's an option for me. Because ultimately, it's not us that is the driving force. We aren't the change agent. That's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God. But it's really important to remember that the life that Jesus talks about is a possibility. It's not just a random desire. I wouldn't be great if, but we're never really going to get there. Like, it actually is possible. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas. Nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. And sometimes we get lost because we think um, the arena that all that plays out in is our behavior, like what we can see on the outside. And so we attend to that. We try and do better. We try and encourage one another to do better. But actually the place where all this plays out and the only arena where victory is actually possible is in here, in our hearts. And we're not so much thinking about emotion and what we feel about stuff like you you think heart and you think feeling and um, emotion and feelings are important but obviously they ebb and flow like depending whether the sun's out or not or any other factor like our emotions are um, naturally quite uh, changeable but when we're talking about our hearts we're talking about choice talking about resolve talking about actually this is the kind of person that I want to be and so as we think about the kingdom, it's like, oh, can we choose it? We can choose it. But in order to choose it with integrity, as with any choice, it needs to not come from a place of conceit, from a place of fear or tradition or social pressure or because I've always done it that way or because church told me to do it. Like it has to come from a genuine sense of I want this thing or probably more accurately, I want to want this thing. Or maybe I want to want to want to want to one day want this thing. But it's that, it's that genuine desire. That's the essence of the choice that I think makes all this possible. And, um, but in order to do that genuinely, we've got to believe it's good. That it's not just because I'm at church and I've always been to church or because whatever reason like actually the kingdom is good Jesus's way of doing things is good it's the best so often we we treat Jesus like the world treats him and um, think about dogma or or legalism and like dogma is the idea that you have to believe something you this is what you believe and you have to believe it whether or not you actually believe it or not and legalism would be like this is the law you have to do this whether it's good for you or not But the way of Jesus is so much higher than this. Actually, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We spent all of last term looking at it. Like actually, if we trust him, if we worship him, if we recognize him for who he is, then we recognize that he actually represents a whole new way of being, and it's good. Simply put, he has the best information on the most important matters. 
There's a way of life that he espouses, and it's a good one. And it's available to everyone who put their trust in him because he then gives the power for that transformation. Life in the kingdom is an option for you. And it will look like something. You know, the, the trees of our life produce fruit, and it looks like something. But fruit is only ever the natural byproduct of the nature of the tree. And so if we're constantly being like, how can I, you know, I'm an apple tree, but how can I grow a peach? How can I grow a pear? How can I grow something else? It's not going to happen without a fundamental transfer of nature. But the good news is that's what we're promised. Like actually through God, we're made into new creations and a new kingdom life is possible for us. And it's good. It's really good. Okay. Matthew 5, 33. That was a long intro. Uh, if you've got it, you want to turn to it. It's just four verses. The making of oaths. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the, great, the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, if you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to simply say is yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So just to kind of reorientate you with where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount, um, Jesus has basically kind of said, life in the kingdom is here, it's only through me you can have it. Then we had the Beatitudes and the idea that um, ordinary people, every single one of us, can live a blessed life because it's a different kind of life than the world imagines is the blessed life. But we all, it's all possible for us. And in living that life, we become salt and light to the world. And then we get into this next section to the rest of chapter five, um, where Jesus is unpacking this idea that he brings in verse 17 to 20, when he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he talks about how actually through him, there is now a possibility for your heart to change in such a way that you can become the kind of person that lives in the kingdom and invites others into that. And then we get um, numerous examples of what that looks like. So we've, we've collected them together in this first movement of the Sermon on the Mount called How Is Your Heart? And uh, we've looked at things like anger and lust and those, those kind of things. And oaths is just another one of those. It's the fourth one. So we're thinking, how is our heart? And we can approach this much the same way San approached adultery last week, the teaching about adultery last week, sorry. <laughs> um, uh, he said, um, the idea that there is a, a topic, an idea, there's an old righteousness, there's an old way of seeing what right living is, and then there's a new way of seeing what right living is. So the old way is when Jesus is saying, you have heard that it was said, and then he says, but I say to you, remembering, of course, he's not abolishing the one, he's fulfilling it. And um, for murder and adultery, the idea was, you know, the old way of righteousness was we obey the law by not doing those things, by not killing people and by not committing adultery. But the new righteousness was actually, don't just try and not do those things, but become the kind of person for whom those things are completely incompatible. So for murder, it's like, don't just don't do that, but keep your heart from anger. And for adultery, it was, well, don't just don't do that, but keep your heart from lust. So for oaths, it looks like this. The old way of right living was, if you promise to do something, 
especially if you bring God into it, you'd better follow through. And if you don't, there's some punishment for you. The new way of thinking is that don't just mean, don't just say what you mean. No, the new way of thinking is just say what you mean and don't use verbal manipulation. That's the topic we're going to come back to. Don't use verbal manipulation. So remembering that the, the new doesn't replace the old, it fulfills it, it takes it up into a higher plane. And um, it's possible by attending to the heart. So we're going to unpack this passage using um, a little formula that Martin Lloyd-Jones uses in his studies on the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to think, what was the purpose of the original teaching? How were the Pharisees messing it up? And actually, what's Jesus speaking to us today? So for the original Mosaic teaching, um, so the bit where Jesus is like, you have heard it said, don't break your oath, but fulfill your vows to the Lord. Unlike some of the other ones, it's not a direct quotation in terms of, this is the Levitical law, this is what I'm saying. It was more of a conflation of ideas, basically centered around the idea that if you're going to make a vow in God's name, you better be really, really serious about it. Because take, like, sort of, it's in, you know, do not take the Lord's name in vain. That is, that is a really big deal. And so, um, remembering that it's not about abolishing but fulfilling, thinking about, okay, why did we have that law? Why did Moses tell the people like, to be really careful about how they, um, how they make promises? And simply put, it was because humans lie. We've got a proneness to lie. And actually, um, the law, in its goodness, in its um, creating a pathway for us to see what it's like to live as the people of God, is like, we want a society where people don't lie. So the law was there to try and curb that. Because life gets chaotic when we can't rely on what people say. So sticking to your words is important. And it meant that um, in matters of particular seriousness, there was a mechanism by which uh, the people could do this thing where they would swear in the name of the Lord, and it would be like, I really, really mean this. Like, you, like it's really important that you believe me, and so there's this thing that I can do to make you realize that, knowing that if I don't, I'm in big trouble. So the goal was a more truthful society. But then humanity happened. And we see that pictured in the scribes and the Pharisees. Remembering it's really important to not just see them as other, but actually be like, what's Jesus saying to us in that? And um, we see in the, in the passage how you know, Jesus, you know, he says, you know, you're, you're making oaths on Jerusalem and you're, talking, you're making oaths on your head. And it, they're just adding these extra layers of things. And his criticism to them is, you guys care more about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. In other words, you don't care so much whether you speak truth or lies, you care about getting caught. As with the rest, as is many other examples, like here we have a situation where the Pharisees have taken what Moses has said and they elaborate on it. They add extra things, they add conditions, they make, um, make additions, they add legal technicalities, which basically gives them the permission to have a bit of wiggle room. It's a bit more obvious in Matthew 23, um, so that's going to come up, verse 16. <clears throat> Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by the oath. You blind fools, which is greater? 
the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred. You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So we see this whole extra layer of complexity that the Pharisees are adding in. You know, it's, it's stupid when you think about it, isn't it? It's like, well, if you swear on the temple, it doesn't really matter. But the gold in the temple, now, that, that's right. Now we're talking. You've brought the gold into it. It's just like, oh, the altar? Yeah, everyone swears by the altar. Don't worry about that. But oh, gift on the altar. Now, this is a big deal. And um, they create these distinctions between oaths that actually disrespect them all, make them all meaningless. They're just, they're just a way that if you're in the right group and the right crowd, you can say the right things to get the right result. Don Carson said this, the swearing of oaths thus degenerates into terrible rules which let you know when you can get away with lying and deception and when you can't. These oaths no longer foster truthfulness but weaken the cause of truth and promote deceit. Swearing evasively becomes justification for lying. So it's not about Jesus exposing the sham at the heart of the Pharisees. Like, it's not about following God. It's not about the kingdom life. It's about complicating the law to such a way that you can pick and choose things and emphasize certain things and do stuff that benefits you. It's, it's just about sorting yourself out. And the fruit that grows from this kind of heart is rotten. A few people have mentioned it already now. Jesus refers to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. Like, look good on the outside, but inside it's filthy, it's rotting. And so, remember what the purpose of the law is, was truthfulness. The law's good, but the heart of the people using it wasn't. And so the fruit we got was rotten. And this is one of many examples that Jesus calls out the Pharisees on. Them using the law for their own benefit and it actually producing the opposite kind of fruit from what was intentioned. But in this specific sense, and this is where we're going to um, hone in on us today, Jesus is showing the Pharisees to be verbal manipulators of using oaths as a technique to get their own way. So what is Jesus teaching us today? Um, in terms of words on the page, it's pretty straightforward. He just says, simply let your yes be a yes. Let your no be a no. Anything else is of the evil one. So Jesus is telling us that if you care about the kingdom good that is truthfulness, if your heart desires the reality of Jesus, your word alone will be enough. It will mean, or at least it will come to mean, we are, we are in process, we're on a journey. It will come to mean something in and of itself. The fruit of your word will be self-evident. So in the kingdom of God, you don't need to appeal to a higher power to convince people that what you say is what you mean. It's simply a natural byproduct of wanting God to help you live his way. So swearing isn't necessary for truthfulness. You don't have to do it. It's not needed, and so it can be disregarded for that reason. And in a way, that would be, that would be quite 
great, let's pack up and go home. That's really easier. Thanks, Jesus. But then he says that bit about anything else is from the evil one. And that kind of smarts a bit more, doesn't it? Um, it's more than swearing being unnecessary. Jesus is saying it's, it's evil. And that word is like, whoa. Um, but again, um, Big Dallas is helpful with this. In that, uh, he, he describes it as evil because it's basically, it's using this technique is an, in, is an inherently wrong way to approach another human being. He said this quote, the essence of swearing or making oaths is to try to use something that though impressive is irrelevant to the issues at hand in order to get others to believe you and let you have your own way. So in other words, we exaggerate and we elaborate and we look to convince people in such a way that we short circuit their understanding of a situation in order that they get to the place that we want them to be in. So we think, okay, if I present this in a such a way, actually, I'm, for whatever reason, maybe it's, maybe it's malintended, maybe it's really good and well-intended, but you think, okay, I, I need you to think a certain way about this, and so I'm going to exaggerate, and I'm going to elaborate, and I'm going to add things so that you get there. And I'm going to short-circuit the process, which, which is you're a human and you get to choose. And the thing is, this kind of works a lot, doesn't it? Like, I don't know if you're familiar with social media. Um, if not, don't let me ruin your life for you. But um, there's a lot of people short-circuiting understandings in a lot of places. The world is full of people making it by saying yeses that aren't really yeses and knows that aren't really knows. And it's often with good results. You know, stuff that is positive and helpful and productive. And that's why it's challenging, you know, it's like being the rich ruler talking to Jesus and it's like, what do I need to do? He's like, you need to do this. He's like, ooh, that's a hard teaching. You know, does the end justify the means? I think Jesus is saying, no, it doesn't. You know, we see it in top, from top to bottom in society, don't we? Like, it's almost easier to see it in an abstract, disconnected sense. You know, look at our politicians and our leaders and how they jostle for power and influence. And it's just like, really frustrating. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he's like, if you want your nation to be great, you lie about it. And the more you lie, the more likely you are to succeed. It's true, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but I can't read that quote and not sort of consider a slightly scruffy-haired blonde gentleman who stands at one of these and, um, you know, we've been talking a lot about whether he did or didn't lie and if he did or didn't lie, whether he did it in the place he can do it or not do it in the place where he can't do it and, and actually whether actually he's doing some good or isn't doing some good and so maybe it's okay. Maybe it, that conversation. <laughs> and um, sorry, I don't mean to make that trivial because it's actually a really serious discussion with some serious real-world ramifications. But my point is it's easy to be outraged at that 
It's really easy to be outraged at that. Or any other example of when they get it wrong, whoever they are. But yet at the same time, be more than happy to do exactly the same thing ourselves. As in using verbal manipulation, doing that short-circuiting thing. And we tell ourselves it doesn't really matter because of X, Y, or Z. That's exactly what the Pharisees did when they're like, it's fine on the temple, it's not fine on the temple gold. You know, well, I might have made that last bit up, but it's not like I lied in the House of Commons, is it? So probably okay. Or, yeah, I guess we exaggerated just how much we achieved last year, but gets the finances in, and we are doing good work after all, so it's probably okay. And, you know, I promise you, I promise you, as God is my witness, I will definitely, definitely, definitely be there this time. There's probably a million other examples we could all think of. And I'm not... Please hear me, I'm not trying to um, cast a load of judgment on you, but I'm, what I'm trying to say is, you know, diagnosing a problem in others is one thing. Spotting it in ourselves, in myself, is quite another. I'm pretty sure there's a Bible verse about that somewhere that, you know, involved logs and specks. But it's easy to get cross about people that use verbal manipulation. And when we've been subject to that, it's easy to get cross at it. But it's more useful in the pursuit of God's kingdom to become aware of it in ourselves. It's why Jesus' teaching is so much more fundamental than just keep your commitments. Like, of course it's that. In the same way that the teaching about adultery is don't commit adultery. Of course, don't do that. Don't commit murder. Like, and if you came in needing to hear that, like, that's part of it. But fundamentally, Jesus is going after the heart. Like, what kind of person do you want to be? Is it someone that's happy to, you know, get what they need as long as they can justify it in some way or some other? Or is it the kind of person that that doesn't even want to do that at all? The kind of person that actually respects someone enough to let them make their own judgment? and not succumb to the evil of trying to manipulate their thoughts or their choices. Moving past this as a, as a behavior is hard. Because like I said, it, it works. It's really successful. Um, and like with anger, like with lust, it can feel impossible. It can feel like, well, like this, we're never going to do that. So obviously, did, you know, let's just take the, some sort of meaning from it and move on. You know, it's this, for this, it's just too useful. <laughs> it's too useful. Like being able to influence the way people see you or believe you or respond to you through the way that you speak can be a superpower. And it's one that Christians or, you know, or people with a cause, we can wield with the most noble of intentions without even really realizing it, like we can use it to get a lot of really good stuff done. But good is often the enemy of the best. And I think Jesus' desire for the kingdom is that we start to have this radical change within our hearts where we we become the kind of people that don't lust, that don't lose ourselves to anger, that don't manipulate verbally. It's hard, but it's possible. Like I said at the start, it's possible because it's the best. Like, think about Jesus. Think about who he is as a person. 
Think about his teaching. Think about what he did for, for us. It's good news. Like, and I guess that's the question. More than like, can I do this or can I not? It's like, do I think it's good news? Do I think that Jesus Christ is the best information for the most important matters? Or let's get more experiential about it. Have you found Jesus to be good news? Have you found him to be the best information on the most important matters? Have you found his teaching to be more real than the way of the world? You know, have you found him to be like we see him in the Gospel of John where he walks through the door? And, if, you know, I think he's kind of a ghost, but he's actually more real than it. Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I think you have. And the thing is, if we have done those things, like even if, like I said at the start, even there's just like the tiniest glowing ember of desire in our heart for the things of God, that, you know, that we want to want to want to want his kingdom, then it's possible and it's happening. The kingdom is at hand. Because it's God who changes you. It's God who gives you grace. It's God who is the empowering agent in all of this. And nothing is impossible for him. My final thought. Um, all of this makes me think of the pearl of great price. In the message translation it says, God's kingdom is like a jewel merchant on the hunt for exquisite pearls. Finding one that is flawless he immediately sells everything and buys it. And I remember reading this in the um, stories that Jesus told Bible with my kids. And uh, he sort of, he put them to bed and he just sat there like, ooh, like, I can't remember exactly what the line is. I didn't find it when I was prepping, but it's something along the lines of, when you find what truly matters in life, you give up everything for it. And, you know, the idea, like I'm sat there reading it and there's this little cartoon of this guy with a funny hat and he sells his house and he sells his food and he sells his bed and he said, then he sells his funny hat because he doesn't quite have enough. And he's absolutely delighted because he's got this little round thing. And I'm like, you can't eat that thing. You can't sleep in that. What are you doing? It's stupid. It's foolish. And, but that's the invitation. The kingdom of heaven is like that pearl that when we find it and we give everything for it, like, it doesn't make sense. It's inefficient. It will slow us down. It will make us less effective. All those things. It feels like foolishness to the world. But like Paul said, for those who are being saved, it's the power of God. That we taste that pearl of the kingdom and be like, yeah, that's worth it. And it's all couch in the fact that we know none of this has anything to do with whether God finds us acceptable or not. He's already decided that. He's already spoken that over us. We've been singing about it all morning. Like you are completely loved and accepted. He delights in you and he wants you to be with him forever. But there's a choice that is in front of all of us that we can be part of his kingdom and it looks like him rearranging the world to the way he always intended. But that's going to require some major heart surgery that he wants to do and he can do and he is doing so just in summary, what we've learned from this passage, 
The essence of the law on oaths was to promote a more truthful society where people could trust what others said. In missing the heart of the law and focusing on its application, the Pharisees actually promoted the opposite, allowing for legitimate ways of telling lies. We do exactly the same thing when we use exaggerations and elaborations to convince others that what we really mean and really say is true. When we try and remove any other possibility that they may think otherwise. Life in the kingdom, however, simply requires that we respect the judgments of others enough just to say yes or no, allowing the fruit of truthfulness in our lives to speak for itself. This is entirely possible for us. All right, let's pray. And I've got a couple of homework things you can take away with you. But why don't you stand up? (laughs) It's not really homework. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, I just pray that everything that is of you would, would take root and bear fruit in our lives and everything that's not would just would fall away and help us to get more understanding. Lord, we only see in part and we're on a journey and we want to see more of you. But I pray this morning you would deposit in us a desire for your kingdom, that those embers would burn brighter in our hearts and we would taste and see that you're good and that knowing how loved we are, knowing how accepted we are, we'd be okay about seeing where we need to let go of things. Trusting in your grace and your power and your mercy. Help us to be good news to one another as we receive good news from you. And help us just to notice what you're doing in our life and how we can respond to it. Yeah, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Awesome. Yeah, so the, uh, we just want to leave you three things that you could do practically this week if you wanted to sort of crack it. You can sit down if you like. Um, <laughs> firstly, it was uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. So can you find a moment every day this week, even just for 20 seconds, to like start to delight yourself in God and just notice what that does to your heart? I don't know what that might look like for you, but can you turn your affection to God in a way every day this week? Secondly, what about having a brave conversation? Could you talk about this teaching with a friend and in doing so, ask each other questions about your heart more than your behaviors? Is there someone that you can have that kind of conversation with this week? And then thirdly, this is a sort of an ongoing one, but um, we've been quoting Dallas Willard a lot, and if you, he is amazing. But he wrote a book called Renovation of the Heart, uh, which is specifically kind of a really practical walk through what's going on in your heart. And so, it's, yeah, I would encourage you to read this. Like, um, I read this with Karim and Katie and Andy last year, and it, it was brilliant to do it together. So if you're looking for a book to study with either on your own or with some friends, then I would highly recommend that one. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, go and get your kids if you haven't already. And uh, I'll hand over to Neil. Thank you, Ralph. Come on, that was awesome.